On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of See Here is dedicated to one Mr. Bernard Stickwell. What a stipulant! to episode 84 of the See Here podcast. Indeed, welcome to this house of fun. On the other end of the Skype connection, I have my great friend and podcasting partner, Mr. Tim Merrill. Hello, I'm just sitting here wearing my baggy trousers and ready to get into some fun. I'd love to say that we have our compadre, Mr. Bernard Stickwell, on the other end of a Skype connection, but he was arrested while trying to buy some balloons in a party shop. This time around, Tim and I are happy to present an interview with two film directors, Bill Jones and Ben Timlett. They spoke to us the other day about a wonderful new documentary called Before We Was We, Madness by Madness. As we're recording, this is actually going to premiere in England and I think in America on the AMC network. It's so I think the first time that we've covered a TV-related production. Yeah, this is the first time. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully not the last. This was a really, really excellent documentary. Three parts it's going to be presented on AMC. Uh, if you're listening to this further down the track, then I'm hoping it'll be uh, presented on some sort of VOD or even uh, DVD for you to uh, be able to access. I'm going to put this out just before the show airs, so you'll get a bit of an idea what it is that you're going to be watching. So, yep, a lot of fun. And it's talking about madness before they became famous. It's rather unique sort of take on a documentary for all you ska aficionados and old school moon stompers and rude boys this one is for you i think you're really gonna get down into the kibble the grit and the grime of madness right from the start this is a great one we had a lovely time talking to these two men and really appreciated that they gave us their time mm, absolutely so what we're going to do now is we're going to play the trailer for the documentary and then uh, we'll get right into our interview with the gents and after that we'll be back to talk about what's going to be happening on See Here, episode 85. It was just the melting pot of cultures. That was the greatest time of my life. We sort of looking for adventure and stuff. Graffiti was the first thing, and then music was really a huge step in the right direction. Thought we were punks, and we hated punks. For us, it was scar. The feeling was just to be nutty, moving the head like a Trojan. Sags wasn't there. He gone to football. <laughs> you can't do much without your main man. I said, you bastard. I need to be up there. Not down here. <laughs> we knew it was going to explode. Blimey. 
incredibly exciting. Madness is like some dysfunctional family. So who was mum and who was dad? In their own words. I look back on it all now and I think it's a beautiful thing what Madness created. Before we was we. Madness by Madness. Naughty boys in nasty schools and masters breaking all the rules Having fun and playing pools Smashing up the woodwork All the teachers in the pub Passing and a ready rub Trying not to think of when the lunchtime bell will ring again Oh what fun we had But did it really turn out bad All of the school was has to spend not Hello, welcome back to episode 84 of See Here Podcast and Tim and I are thrilled to have on the line the two directors, producers, creators of the new Madness documentary, Before We Was We. On the line we have Ben Timlett and Bill Jones. Welcome to the show, gents. Thanks for having us. Thank yeah. you for coming on the show. Congratulations on the imminent release of this new three-part documentary on Madness. But before we head into talking about the new film, I wanted to briefly digress to talk about an earlier film that you'd made an accidental studio about handmade films. That was the company that was created because George Harrison just happened to want to watch Monty Python's Life of Brian. I really love that that film exists because it reflects a hugely important time in British film history that probably saved the British film industry. So I'd love to know, how did you think about getting that project started? And I know that you gents also have made a few Python-related films. So what's the story behind getting the handmade documentary? God, I, I didn't know you were going to ask us about that. I, I, have, to try to, I have to try to remember. How did, what did we do, Bill? Well, basically, I mean, we, we did a Python anniversary, 40th anniversary documentary, a six-part, one-hour six-parts, and one of the episodes was about Life of Brian. And that's when we sort of first discovered about George's connect, real connection to this. I mean, my dad's actually Terry Jones from Monty Python. Now, you listen here. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Now go away. So I sort of grew up with this. I sort of knew the story, but it was like just but listening to the story unfold then, it just seemed such a a wonderful idea and then after we did the Monty Python documentary we then did a sort of bi- autobiography film about Graham Chapman now fuck off and then so after that we were quite pythoned out and we've done a lot of Python related stuff there so we decided to take a break even though we thought that the um, handmade story was a good story to tell and then seven years later Ben was like that handmade story is a great story you know we should look into that you know, it is such a wonderful story, and and it is part of my heritage. And the film my dad directed, and and it was the story I really wanted to tell. And and also, there's so many films from Handmade that we know that are sort of British classics. You don't know that the, a Beatle produced them. They were pushing the the George angle when they were released, mm. but they survived. They didn't do brilliantly well at the time. You know, some of them didn't do very well. Like with Nell and I, didn't with Nell and I, yeah. So that didn't do very well. And some and some of the other ones didn't do too well, but some of them did okay. But they lasted the test of time. Video, you know, kept them going, and people started watching more, and they became these cult classics. And people forgot that they were produced by uh, George Harrison and right. and his business partner. It's just these names, you know, and then and don't realise there's this connection. It's you meet the odd person who goes. Oh, yeah, I love that film. And I always remember reading Handmaid. Who the hell reads the credits of what production company reads that? <laughs> what sad weirdos does that? 
And unless I know someone in it, I don't bother. <laughs> but then partly that's because I've got such a bad memory, I can't remember right. the name. <laughs> Were you guys involved in the final performances that they, they ran through the theatres? The uh, Mostly Live. Right. No, 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 we didn't get involved in that live production. That's not really something we do. I do remember when they were doing the Mostly Live, when we were doing the animated film about Graham Chapman that we did called Eliza Autobiography, we needed Eric to do some bits. So I think we needed some voice work from Eric to sort of be part of this, this animated film which Graham does from the grave. I remember we went into the, into the O2 and there was this tiny booth in the middle of this vast space and Eric did a couple of lines for us. No, that was for absolutely anything. Oh, God, I'm getting confused. <laughs> <laughs> Start again. Bill's dad's last film, Absolutely Anything. The Pythons appeared in that film, which starred Simon Pegg, which Bill and I also produced. And in that film, all the Pythons were these despotic aliens that were sort of full CG characters. And Eric was a sort of... He's always the cheeky chappy. He was some cheeky chappy. <laughs> And now I remember, yeah, we went in there and did that voice Eric. Nice. I only found out about that film just looking through your IMTB in the last couple of weeks or so. That sounds like something I definitely have to say. I'll watch anything with Simon Pegg. I mean, it was a very silly film. But I'm not having things getting silly. I mean, we enjoyed making it. But that was like that was like such a sort of bigger, bigger scale thing. Bill and I really enjoy the directing and documentaries fun because you have a just you know you you make you have a small team, whereas the moment you get into sort of proper feature film you're, you're dealing with like a crew of 120 <laughs> i'm just going to go back to accidental studios i mean we just thought it was such a great story and a story that should be told for me it was a bit of a sort of thank you to george for, for stepping in it was like a thank you for making my dad's film but also i'm a massive python fan and it's like a thank you for saving Life of Brian, because if we didn't have Life of Brian, that would be a real shame for all the hundreds of sad Python fans who repeat repeat <laughs> lines in the pub. And I'm right. I'm, I'm I'm one of those, you know. <laughs> I'm I'm happy to like shout. Uh, he's not he's not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's a very silly boy. You are your father's son, aren't you? <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so just, making just a, an anime was such a, was such a, a sort of personal passion project. And Ben was just like, it's a great story. We need to get it told. If you think about the films that wouldn't have existed had George not just, I mean, Time Bandits with Nell and I. Well, I was trying to remember, what was the one that Michael did about the priest? Because I remember that playing in the theatre here in Canada. The Mission. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that was one I know probably didn't do very well. But I mean, now you go back and watch it again. It's hilarious. It's great. Mm. And now we talk about The Long Good Friday is the greatest British gangster film ever made. And I'd probably suggest one of the greatest gangster films, period. The Longer 
Friday had gone through its whole, had been produced by... EMI. It wasn't EMI. I think it was um, Bernie Delfont's brother. And that had got to a point where they basically wanted to bury it. And George stepped in with Dennis uh, as a result of uh, of Eric, basically, of, of a conversation between Eric and Bob. And they stepped in and basically said, well, we'll, we'll buy it off them and release it. Bob was like told, look, we're going to bury it. But if you want, you can buy it off us. And he was like, yeah, right. How am I, where am I going to get the money for that? Bob's not exactly your household name at this point. Bob Hoskins. Yeah. yeah, Bob Hoskins. And then Bob Hoskins goes to a, a celebi dinner or party and he bumps into Eric and he's like, Eric, you've got, you, you know, because at that point, Handmade was really a Python production company, really. And he was like, you've got a film company. Why, why don't you buy this film and release it? And so then Eric went and saw the film and then was like, turned to Dennis, George's business partner, and was like, we should buy this film. Right, and he said, I think he said it to George. And then George was like, oh, yeah, all right. And then he got Dennis to have a look and Dennis said, yes, let's do it. When Hanmei brought it, they had a premiere and George saw the film for the first time. Afterwards, he came out a bit white-faced and like looked at Bob and went, if I'd known it was that violent, I wouldn't have touched it. Because <laughs> it's not really George's film. No, <laughs> George's type of film. I think but, he was um, trying to beware of darkness. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> he wanted to make the world a nicer place, a more happy place. I think. Sure, sure. But no, it was great, and it's that's why we called it an accidental studio because it's like he didn't really set it up to be a no. studio. He just set it up to make Life of Brian, and then they had this massive hit on their hands and then that funded the uh, gave them the ability to spend some more money and they were then they were able to do Long Good Friday also another hit it just snowballed from there one of the curses of the film industry their first three films were successes they had Life of Brian Long Good Friday and Time Bandits so then they thought they knew what they were doing <laughs> which you should never think when you're in the film industry Shanghai surprise anyone <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think really George actually just wanted to have a laugh yeah. and make funny films really and like mess about with his mates there and then the business side. I suppose what, what was interesting is when you get into that sort of fight between creativity and the and that marriage of, of business that has to happen and, and how that goes in the end quite often badly. <laughs> <laughs> But not in Orange Street A ghost dance is preparing You got to help us with your feet If you're not in a mood to dance Step back, grab yourself a seat This may not be uptown Jamaica But we promise you a treat Let's talk about the new film, Before We Was We. Now, I didn't get a chance to read the book that the film is extracted from for this show. Did the band approach you, gents, to put the documentary together, or did you pursue madness after reading the book? So Bill and I knew them a bit. Well, we knew them more than a bit. Back in sort of 2006, I think, 2007, they did an album called Norton Folgate, which is a mm. brilliant piece of work. And actually, no, you know what? Before that, they did an album of covers, The Danger Men. And 
and they toured as the Danger Men. And, and we, uh, through a mate of ours called Nick Rutter, got involved in basically making them three things. You know, this is really early on in our careers. <laughs> we did a concert film where we just filmed as the Danger Men. They went on tour to America and we followed them on tour. And then we did this kind of comedy film where we invented a bit Spinal Tap. We invented a history for the Danger Man. So they were a band, they were all from Jamaica. They, they could, you know, they were all poor kids and they could only live by eating each other's dreadlocks. It was just a complete load of nonsense and, and silly jokes all the way through it. And they, you know, they used to kill fans at the end of gigs. And I don't know, none of it sounds very funny anymore. I don't know, we thought it was funny at the time. This was in our sort of early okay. 20s. We did have some classes British stand-up comedians are Phil Jupiter's. Yeah, who else was in it? Mark Lamar was there. Was in Mark it? Lamar, um, heck, what's Lee? Uh, Lee, ugh, what's uh, his name? Stuart Lee. Stuart Lee. And they all just sort of improv this stuff about them being killed. I can't remember who did it first, but someone said, oh, yeah, yeah, you go to the gigs and then you expect one of your friends to go missing. You know, it's just what happened at the Danger Men. <laughs> and then we said that. And then the next interview, we like went, there's this rumour going around. We just, you just asked them the question. So there's, what's this about this rumour about people dying at the gigs? And then, and then they just improv it all. I remember it being funny. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sort of worked. Anyway, we did these things. Anyway, that was a while ago. And then, in the last sort of couple of years, there was talk about doing something for them for their sort of 40th anniversary of their first record, I think, The Prince. And there was a discussion then about stuff. And then that sort of petered out. And then about two weeks before the book, before We Was We, was released, somebody in their management sent us the manuscript and we read it and it was just brilliant. I mean, it was just perfect because they'd all decided to do this book. We didn't know really know about it until that moment. And they'd done it all as interviews. So basically it was just edited interviews of them. Um, so there's no narrator, there's no somebody else giving you an opinion. It's just them, seven of them, with all their interviews edited together, telling them their story from really birth through to their first sort of the end of 1979. Bill and I just thought straight away, this is the perfect thing to visualise. And also they've done it as an audio book, which meant that you could almost just sort of see ourselves straight away editing it with archive. Madness made a film called Take It or Leave It in 1981. And this is their sort of hard day's night. And what they're doing in that film really is, and it's, and it's them, I think it's slightly improvised, but it's basically them recreating this story of them becoming madness. <laughs> now, what is it you want? Well, we're in a group and we'd like to play it. We'd yeah. Like play it. Playing one night in the back room or something. Yeah, um, and what sort of music? So, we do a bit of everything, really. We do a bit of this, a bit of jazz, a bit of that. Uh, you do some jazz? Different sort of music. Yeah, we do a few jazz songs, yeah. Because, you know, we've got sort of people here that they're very particular about the kind of music they hear. Yeah. Well, we've yeah. got some friends that have come anyway, you know. Have you? Usually yeah. we get a certain amount of people who come to see us every time we play, you know. Oh, you've got sort of followers, really. Yeah. yeah. And do you want to sort of try it out soon? I mean, you want to do something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possible, really. Well, Whatever. could maybe let you come Friday next. Will that be all right? Be great, yeah. yeah. Okay. About, um, about eight o'clock. Fine. All right, okay. Thanks very much. And I'd better ask you now, what do you call yourselves? Madness. 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 
you know, I mean, Madness fans know about it. I mean, I think it was released into cinemas. People of that sort of generation, I don't know, do you guys know about it? I only found out about it in prep for this, but I went and watched it. The whole thing's on YouTube and sort of wanted to ask you, because it's an unusual film. You either get like a story with actors well after the fact, but this is a film with the band made just as the band is becoming famous. Was this something that Dave Robinson of Stiff pushed them to do? I don't know, actually, the answer to that. I haven't really asked them how Take or Leave It came about. I don't know. Do you know what? I don't know. It's funny. Why haven't I asked them? I don't know. But you're... <laughs> Good for the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it, but it, it does seem like an obvious extension to what Dave Robinson was doing, where he was directing their videos and stuff. And it's, right. you know, it feels like something you know the technology was getting not within reach of the mortal man but you know it, it was a bit easier to do shoot on 16 mil it could be done it was one of those things you know as ben says he you know it was their version of a hard day's night one step beyond. funny thing with madness to me and i have to make a confession is that back in the day you know i listened to the bead and i listened to the specials but i always thought madness had something really quaint about them here's the interesting thing though it's almost like the beatles paradox where everybody always thought that the stones were the more street kind of guys and that the beatles were more the prim and proper but actually it was the beatles that came from the bricks and the stones were all the art school guys and then you look at madness and madness actually came from the bricks despite all the top clobber they wore you know <laughs> i mean and that's what really surprised me because i didn't know any of this past about them nicking from the phone boxes and everything else i mean like all of this i'm just like holy like, shit man like this is a sight to behold they definitely well they nicked everything isn't it i mean <laughs> When I show it to people, I say, you know, especially people from London, North London, say, you can watch this, but they probably stole your scooter outside Camden Tube. <laughs> the, the thing about them is they are, some of them are working class, very working class, but not all of them, don't forget. I mean, Woody, you know, his dad was a photographer and parents both met at RADA and he's got a slightly more middle class. And um, actually, weirdly, Mark has a very similar background to my family. So Mark's family are from worked in all the print and all the Fleet Street and, and he was um, he was what was known as casual and my father and my grandfather and, all, and brothers were, were also in the print and doing exactly the same thing as him working the machines at the same time but my dad's family was sort of new middle class which I would probably say I mean I don't know if Mark agrees with that but that is what they were like they had a bit of money so their kids could do something else other than right. just, you know but then what's interesting I would say about all of them is although they are like kids on the street there is an artistic element to their family all of them you know that's that is there you know, the guitarist his dad's accomplished musician you know chrissy boy told me he was 
dad was good friends with the Dubliners and they used to go to those gigs as a kid. And then obviously Suggs' mum was a jazz singer and worked in the, I mean, I don't know how much jazz singing she actually did compared to just working in the clubs in Soho. But he's he's in that world, you know. Right, I mean, right. he said, it, it, for him, it was dreadful. You know, he'd, he'd go to the club, have to sort of see his mum and then his mum would suddenly get up on stage and start singing and he'd think, oh, bloody hell, I'm going to be here for hours now. <laughs> One thing that really hit me with this film, too, that I, I love about this is that you guys, I didn't even realize for Madness, two big influences are like two of my favorite performers of all time, Alex Harvey and Uncle Ian. I see an absolute connection between the both of them and Madness in the sense that in all three, you can see them being able to sit down and rub elbows with anybody and just fit right in. Ian had that whole world erudite element to him and alex harvey had that as well and i think madness carries it on just that being able to be you know to, like i say like have a night on the bricks but still have that other end the other angle and have that top musicianship like you said you know as well but, but be, what i mean in terms of being kind of approachable and having a drink is that what oh you yeah mean? Not, well, i would say that ian jury was not that easy to deal with <laughs> <laughs> I would say oh, approaching him would be a hard. I think he would be more. He was definitely a bit tricky. I would say. Right, but I'm saying that all three, it seemed to me, were more well-rounded in terms of you know cultured and like uh, or having their different aspects that really made them stand out. And Madness had it as well. Just that yeah. whole being able to reach out to every kind of aspect of society in a way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think what you touched on is what Madness were interested in. You know, Alex Hart was definitely the pomp and the visuals and the and the humour, and as they talk about in the film, you know, the malevolence. And it's very just writing about everyday stuff and his life and all that. And and also, a lot of it was just that they were there. They were able to see them live. Right, <laughs> you know, exactly. You know, in the pubs, in the, you know, in the gigs and... Those are the people that are, are, are there doing interesting things at the time. Basically, there was not a lot of stuff was had gone its merry way. And those guys certainly had a very theatricality about what they did and a great humour with how they performed is evidence from a lot of those madness video clips. Hello. I'm here to warn you that in the video you're about to see, there is an extremely dangerous stunt, which I'd like none of you at home to try and copy humour was visually something that they were very much a part of and you, you go a long way to show that in the film. I'm sure Tim will concur with this. I certainly remember seeing Madness on The Young Ones. Do, uh, do any of you lot know Summer Holiday by Cliff Richard? Yeah. You am it. I'll smash your face in. <laughs> In some ways, I was trying to think of who were Madness contemporaries. I mean, obviously, we say in the beginning it was the Beat and the Selector, but once they sort of went away from the whole Scar thing, it didn't seem maybe apart from maybe Squeeze. I can't think of any other sort of musical contemporaries, but they were probably more contemporaries with someone like Ben Elton and the Young Ones crew because they were coming up like at a perfect time. That's what attracted me to be a Madness fan. You know, I... I found their greatest hits album in my parents' record collection, and I've sort of and I would play it, and I loved it. And then seeing their comedy videos—that's what set them apart. I do feel like they got sort of put aside as a sort of slightly as a novelty band, dismissed a bit. But that's exactly what you know. I mean, I was a Madness fan. I wasn't a Selector or um, yeah, or the other guys, and they just attracted me because of that. 
I mean, and I don't know who they are. I mean, me and Ben are a bit young, so we weren't really sort of listening to Madness when they first came out. And it was only after they collapsed, they um, broke up, that we became Madness fans. So, and I just, I don't really know who else was around at that time. I mean, right. I was kind of backwards to a lot of it because I remember on television seeing the first initial video for One Step Beyond and just thinking, what the bloody hell is this? Like, it just stood out. And mm. we, we used to have a show called Good Rocking Tonight in Canada where they showed a lot of the independent British stuff for the first time that people had never seen. But I just, you know, remember seeing, like, the video for One Step Beyond and then forgetting about them for a long time. And then there was the single for, what, The Sun and the Moon? like that and that was what really hooked me and then i went back and just went through the whole discography i knew who they were i was just kind of after the single and after a couple things i had heard i was like okay that's good but then i just left it alone for a long time but and i grew up actually together so we met when we were four years old and went to sort of nursery primary and secondary school together so we became madness fans obviously together but then when we got to our sort of early teens like 14 you know they weren't playing together anymore we used to go and see a tribute band called utter madness and they were playing in a, a place called the venue so we would drink we were south london so we would drink we go to the pub you know age 14 in new cross the new cross Inn, and then and then when that closed we go across the road to this club called the venue which was well known because it had uh, the blackest and sweatiest walls in london right so it was something else uh, but we went there because of utter madness they, they were great and then i can't remember how many times we'd been to watch them and then suddenly bill turned to me and said hang on a minute i think that's lee <laughs> i think lee the sax player lee tomo is playing and I, was, I think it is him and then basically they started occasionally playing for the tribute band <laughs> 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 so i had this conversation later obviously when we before just before we started doing this with Suggs, and he said there was three tribute bands of which two of them were occasionally playing in one and one of them was playing in another one and then this was all early 90s and he was like hang on a minute we're supporting three tribute bands <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's not in our documentary. That's 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 yeah. awesome. The one thing I wanted to bring up too before I forget is it was really kind of I liked how you brought up the whole issue about the controversy of them being associated with the National Front and all of that bullshit. <laughs> Did you hear the one? Yeah, yeah. The one they wrote in the paper just the other day. feel about talking about that was it still kind of a touchy thing yes and no i mean i think they feel like it is a touchy subject it was a bit of a painful experience for them to go through right. but they do feel like it's an, an important thing to sort of pull an important story to get out there because sure i mean i we know know people who wrote off madness because they were like oh yeah madness oh yeah they're that nf band 
And it's like they they were watching it at the time and they read the MME, which sort of pushed this view and so then just wrote them off. And it was like, there are people out there who, you know, even though madness has become a national um, treasure in this country, they've still got a bit of that stigma. So I do think it is important to explain it. I mean, it's like, I never knew about the sort of the history of skinheads. You know, I think there's like, was it there's like three waves of skinheads? You know, oh, yeah. the first wave, you know, it's about scar and it's about black kids and white kids and just dancing together and having a great time with this music that's coming from Jamaica. I, I never knew that. I mean, I growing up, a skinhead was a national front, was a, a racist guy who was like, right. you know, had swastikas on his arms and whatever. You know, and that's all I knew. And and so finding out about this other the otherness was, was again very shocking and utter <laughs> who'd have think life is more complicated than you think, you know. Right. I think it was Lee that was saying in the film how he said how the hell can this happen where all this music from Trinidad and Jamaica and uh, the original Moonstomping and all these boneheads love this stuff? Don't they understand where this music is coming from? Yeah, Don't they I, understand I, I, who created this? Like, Mike, I mean, it just tells you how incredibly stupid racism is. I mean, it just. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the stupidest nonsense. That just explains it, I suppose. But there's a kind of a thing where, you know, when he, he said he was misconstrued, saying, how are we supposed to? know the politics of every kid that walks through the door you know well meanwhile if you're walking through the door wearing swastikas i think we know your politics well, that's the thing skinheads weren't they weren't doing that they were walking no. in as skinheads right and, just regular skinheads yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Just regular skinheads and it's like you can't tell the difference between a racist no. skinhead no. like unless they have but they, they weren't wearing stuff like that it was only when they start you know like, uh, people up yeah yeah so they start zeke hiling that you you all right there's the there's yeah. the lot. we found this wonderful wonderful bbc um, documentary about this skinhead band it followed this skinhead band around and they were going to these gigs and it's we got the, all the footage of the skinheads fighting and this is like this is two bands of skinheads fighting at a skinhead punk band gig and they're fighting because one set are, are racist and the other set aren't we had to be very careful that we didn't use any of the non racist skinhead clips for <laughs> when we were talking about the racist ones because we were like you know we'll want to make sure that these people are actually the racists when we're calling them racist when we had footage it's like one guy runs up and he does a you know he like Zeke hiles the camera and then my lawyer's like well hang on was the one behind it Zeke Hiles oh god alright hang on we need to find see if he's Zeke Hiles <laughs> yeah, I found it interesting that you mentioned in the film that the band would often go into the audience and really try to fix things up for themselves and then it got so bad they had to get an ex-SAS soldier to be their security detail I mean how often was this sort of thing happening do you know what I mean I think it happened a lot you know it started to build up and it would be quite often that, I mean I think there were certain venues that they talk about there were always things would kick off I'm trying to remember now what was one of the venues Bill where it would all well, I can't remember yeah. anyway there were certain venues that just seemed to attract this that it would just go completely nuts but you know, then you go to the, you know, the two-tone tour. The two-tone tour was interesting because this felt like 
that nonsense, you know. I mean, I think there were a few instances, but during the two-tone tour, but overall, it just looked like such a celebration of, of that, that, the two-tone, you know. And the best thing about that was that the BFI, British Film Institute, really helped us out, as did Chrysalis. They filmed the two-tone tour, and there's a film that they made called Dance Craze. I don't know if you know about it. Ex- yeah, excellent. I've watched that, yep. It's on YouTube, but it's from a dodgy VHS. Somebody got in touch with them, two of the band bought a film print of it. I probably shouldn't be telling this because they're going to announce this maybe. But anyway, the BFI brilliantly restored that and gave us that footage and it just, wow. I mean, from a crappy VHS to that, Bill and I were so happy. It was one of the last things we got, wasn't it, Bill, into the into the online? Was yeah. that and we were just like, oh my God. <laughs> it was a bit like we'd, uh, we were like looking at this stuff going, oh my God, you can see things. You know, there's <laughs> the background. And we were you like, oh, is, is, is there anything that we can't show? Right. Yeah. There was also a few bits where we were like, oh, 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 have we knocked the sink out there? Oh, well, <laughs> is the lip right. sink still in sync? Have we knocked it out? Oh, on the VHS, you couldn't tell. Talking about the 79, the two-tone tour and, and being on the label as the label got established, and was it that Madness felt like they really didn't want to be pigeonholed as a ska band specifically with the shift to, to Stiff? We did hear later that they might not have even been offered another album, another contract to do another song for Two-Tone. But, you know, it was just one of those things which they felt like they wanted to step out a bit on their own. The three first songs they did, one of them was My Girl. My girl's mad at me I didn't want to see the film tonight I found it hard to say She thought I'd had enough of her Why can't she see She's lovely to me And that's not exactly a a tremendously scary song and as we say in the documentary you know it's, it, that was their break into pop and it was like that was one of their first three songs so they, they were never you know even though they were sort of like a bit shocked about when they first saw the, the specials and they were like wow we've got so much in common we were having right. I think all their influences were the same and they just loved all the same stuff there was something slightly different from them and right. they wanted to spread their wings a bit it wasn't that they weren't they didn't want to be associated with them because they were right. really happy to go back on the two-tone tour you know the specials got them to support them at a gig and you know they really they paved the way for it really helped Madness become get a foothold in, in the industry because the specials did the hard work and then Madness came along when yeah we like the specials <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> well one thing I definitively like about the Stiff label is that everybody on Stiff was uniquely themselves that there really wasn't a similarity between a lot of the people on that label and the label allowed you to be yourself I mean like you're looking at Ian and Larry Wallace and you know John Cooper Clark 
Dark and then Madness. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's just Elvis. So, Nick Lowe. Yeah, Nick Lowe, Elvis, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were uniquely different. How many record labels that have one of their people write a song called I Love My Label? Right, <laughs> right. yes, exactly. <laughs> and when we found that song and we put it in the documentary, we were like, this is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. I love my label. I wanted to divert a little bit about Madness as songwriters, all the stuff that they came up with. I mean, obviously, so they were like many other bands of that new wave era were writing political stuff and it was entering into Thatcher territory. And I sort of find it a, an interesting contrast. The songs that they're sort of most remembered for, at least from those early days, songs like Our House, which has become really ubiquitous, and Baggy Trousers and House of Fun, almost kinks-like in their recollections of their childhood and their teen years, and you know, maybe a lovely cover like It Must Be Love. But just sort of thinking about that, going back through those first couple of albums, there's really a lot of dark material there. Embarrassment about Lee Thompson's observations of his parents' reaction to his sister's pregnancy. Cardiac Arrest and Grey Day and Land of Hope and Glory, which was written about Lee's time in prison. Mm. I'd sort of almost sort of say that they were political, but on a more personal front rather than sort of being overtly, oh, our government is fucked and it's, it's giving us grief. But they just sort of like looked at how the lay of the land was affecting people on a personal level. Yeah, it's more instead of an our story, it was more of a my story. Right, exactly. Uh, did the band ever sort of talk about their outlook on writing songs? Because uh, really, there's a large part of that that catalogue that's quite dark, but people just sort of remember them for, in their words, the nutty sound. <laughs> I mean, again, they just wrote about what they knew. So whether it was about them, their, their upbringing and going to school or whether it was their sister getting pregnant by a black guy. It's like they were just writing about themselves, like you say, and it was a, a more personal. I, I think Carl actually does mention it in the documentary where he's sort of like, you know, they they were sort of talking about themselves a bit. I just agree with you, actually. They were personally political rather than... They were politi only political because they were writing about their lives and their lives were having these things and it's... When you write about what you know and what you what your experience is, if you're experiencing these troubles and stuff, you're going to write about that. And if your experiences are growing up at school and stuff, you're going to write about that. And I think writing up and being personal and just talking about the things that matter to you 
is what makes them such a wonderful band. They're distinctly British. I mean, I, I can't see madness coming from anywhere else. And it, it's just, they just have that definitive thing about, like you say, like, and I like the beginning of the documentary where they're talking about the shell craters and, and how everything was bombed out in the beginning where it was a playground for these kids and that's what they came up in. And I just thought that was the whole surrounding just definitively made them. Mm. You know, how they sort of describe London, post-war London, that they were still experiencing. I mean, maybe not quite rationing, but not a million miles away. And, and I suppose as, you know, kids on the street, I mean, it was still probably, yeah, it was still the days where people left their doors open and kids just walked out of the house and nobody watched them. It wasn't, you know, they just then came back, you know, when it became dark for dinner, you know. Right. So you know, they were all sort of left to, to hang around. I mean, Bill and I, you know, we're obviously sort of, 20 or 20 years or just you know just under 20 years younger but a bit of that London that they described did still exist in the early 80s there were still bombed out bits like that so I suppose you know when we when they talk about it we you know we spent a lot of time looking through archives that sort of felt like we also you know like there's an element to what we can also remember to a degree it was like in the in the 80s they still had the 70s cinema films to stop you from going on the rail tracks you know those were still playing right so, so I remember with Bill and I were like we've got to find those horrifically scary films <laughs> that they were still you know so which we did you know so that so that sort of stuff we hope when we were doing the doc sort of to try and give you at least a sense of their world then right um, I love the bit when they're talking about going to the movies how they basically lock the fence and then they climb over the wall and scale up the side of the building like Spider-Man to get through a window and <laughs> you know they, that that was brilliant you know it's just like we're getting in we don't care how we're getting in you know like, <laughs> you know they were living on the really living on the fringes of society but I think also you also you're trying to get I don't know whether we managed it but life was like their life sounds interesting but ultimately it was boring you know they're right. boring of their right. bloody friends What's even funnier about scaling that, though, is that when they were talking about going on top of the pops, how they basically couldn't get into the pub later. How then they actually did the same thing and scaled up and went over and got in a window and got into the pub. They were there all day. Yeah, that was great. (laughs) Yeah, they just kept. That was the thing. They just kept going, didn't they? They just, you know, changed, but they stayed the same. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I was listening to a couple of podcast interviews, one with Suggs and one with Woody. I don't remember which one of them said it but talking about that bbc appearance one of them said that they were banned from the bbc for quite a while i can't remember if it was because of the pub incident or if it was because they so blatantly did sloppy miming because they thought the whole thing was a joke basically i think after their first performance i think they actually stole somebody's scooter outside bbc since Uh, old habits die hard. Yeah. <laughs> they would never do that. <laughs> I mean, Lee, who I Bill and I feel is like the you know Lee's just just he's so out there. He's got so he's the of, governor. He's just he's just so much sort of so much chaos with him, but yeah, creativity. Yeah. I think Chrissy Boyd said that Lee got fed up with the BBC doing one recording, and he wore this T-shirt that said "I need the BBC," and he like took his shirt off, and then like he was like, "What's that?" And he's then he's like, "Oh, goes two weeks later, I'm gonna put like a hole in the head on another T-shirt." <laughs> it's like who's gonna get that? <laughs> 
<laughs> but now you can actually see that continuity. I, there was this, there was a great bit when we were watching um, the My Girl track, and I was like, uh, Ben, have you seen what Lee does at the beginning of My Girl? He was like, No, what? And I was like, Well, just next time you you watch it, what watch Lee. And at the beginning, there's a little saxophone playing at the front. And I think then that's the only bit of saxophone in the song. He then plays it, and then he falls off the stage. And I think, uh, hopefully someone caught him. But <laughs> And it's like, but it, it's like down to the right of the screen, and you can't really see it. And it's on, it's on this wide, and you just catch it. And it's like... <sighs> He, he would do all this crazy stuff and he wouldn't tell anyone at the BBC that he was going to do it. And so they weren't ready for it. They weren't filming it. It was like, that would have been a great moment to film because he yeah. just did it himself <laughs> off his own back. It's no one knew. Crazy boy, like, on one time he like got a trampoline and he, of course, didn't tell anybody that he'd got it and he's trampolining off the edge of the thing and they didn't know no cameras on him. <laughs> to sort of ask something about the scope of the film and well I guess of the book the film stops pretty much just a short time after they're starting to become famous now years ago I read the biography from a guy who pretty much started out at the same time as they did Joe Jackson he wrote a biography called The Cure for Gravity and that book ends just as he's getting the contract to start recording Look Sharp at A&M Records and he basically said about the book that once the story becomes conventional once they get to album tour album tour rinse wash repeat there's nothing interesting all the interesting stuff is before he becomes famous was that Madness's modus operandi behind the book and your modus operandi behind the film not to go any further because once they become famous it's all just album tour album tour yeah I I mean I think that is why they decided I mean the book finishes where the series finishes and I think you know what comes after that well what you just described and then acrimony or whatever you know arguments and all that you know what actually is really nice about doing an audio book especially that's been interviewed like this is all the stuff they want to talk about is in there <laughs> the filmmaker you don't have to sort of will they talk about this it's all there and right. the book is that the book is so honest they just tell you you know they talk about everything from breaking into Lindsay DePaul's house and eating her sugar puffs you know I mean they literally say everything you know what we talked about before about the you know the skinhead and the NF stuff it's all in there I mean obviously we, we, we they talked about a few you know other things came up when we were interviewing them as well you know what they wanted to talk about is there and that I think is a good basis to try to make a series about but I suppose what you're saying is, is yeah I mean I think what comes after that is what, what we actually think is really interesting is what happens after in between when they break up you know because then they all have to go back into society and what happened to them in between you know I mean Woody I think he had a flooring company called Woody's Flooring and then he became a teacher and I think Mark had a design business Lee I think I don't know I think I'm quite sure Lee did lots and lots of other shows you know you've got this sort of space in there this situation where they've been you know they've had this meteoric rise and they've been this gang and then suddenly they're done they've you know the money's gone and and they have to somehow make a life 
Um, for us, that would be that's interesting. But whether they want to talk about that, I don't know. That's Sorry. exactly what you were saying. I mean, it's like the treadmill of making records and going out and touring. That is pretty much the same for everyone. And the interesting bits are the the rise and then then this aftermath bit, which you, again we find very interesting. Like, well, that's one thing I've always hated with a, a lot of music programs is they have the where are they now? They always seem to have to follow the same that same tra- trajectory of you know okay they're starting they're really famous they're getting there and then they're gone they have to show them hit the wall you know and and i'm like you don't need to show that it should be strictly up to the people that you're documenting you know it should be up to them to decide let's take it here and that's that everybody knows after our house that where it went there's nothing new about that to really focus on what happened to them afterwards we saw you know woody was in another band and then i suppose you know suggs you know became a significant tv personality and had tv shows and but yes i mean you're right ultimately as you say that's where they wanted to to end it and i think in a funny sort of way that's exactly what they did with take it or leave it (laughs) that's the bit they wanted to tell Mm-hmm. Well, it's nice because both films end off with the band on a triumphant high. We don't get that roller coaster, the rise and fall, and then the tentative reunion or anything like that. It's right. It ends off well. Here we are. We're successful. Isn't that great? Father wears his Sunday best. Mother's tired. She needs a rest. The kids are playing up downstairs. Sister's saying in her sleep. Brothers got to date to keep you can't hang around Our house in the middle of our street Our house in the middle of one thing I wanted to ask too, though, is that when they did that musical, was that really that like that big of a deal for them? Was that like the equivalent of being on Broadway, or was it an off-Broadway production? It did our house right? Yeah, I can't really remember that. Was that like a jukebox musical? Was it about madness, or was it just a story created around their songs? I mean, I went to it as a god. I don't know. I must have been twelve or something. I can't remember how old I was. I was young. Maybe I was a bit older than that. I can't remember. Anyway, if there was a story. Which where they used madness songs through the story, you know. Yeah, I remember really enjoying it, but it wasn't an off-Broadway. Show. I mean, it was on, it was in the main the West London End. West End, yeah. And I remember it was relatively successful. You know, it wasn't Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> was it easy for you to uh, get a lot of the take it or leave it footage? I mean, that was fantastic that you had access to that. But you also mentioned dance craze. Were clearances difficult? I mean, I know in a way this must be the boring part, the legal part of it. Did the band say, "Don't worry, we'll get everything cleared"? Was this an easy? documentary for you to put together it's never easy clearances <laughs> it's always painful Ben did all the music clearances so for me it was, yeah it was really easy <laughs> <laughs> So archive clearances, it's always budget, basically. It's what budget you've got. I mean, in terms of Take It or Leave It and Dance Craze, the band and the record companies sorted us out. I mean, it, it you know, they basically... And the band, I think, I mean, the band own Take It or Leave It. So anyway, so that, that was part of the, the whole setup because, we you know, that was essential. But, you know, all the other archive, you know, it's just, it's just the game of going through all the archive houses and then being a music doc and hoping to God that the people in the archive houses love the band, which which they all seem to, and then trying to beg for the best deals we can get. The worst thing is when you find something really good and then and then you go, oh, we'll just put it in and, and we'll find out where it comes from later. And then later on, you can't find where it came from. And you're like, oh, no, we're going to have to take out that bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, really we had some great footage. For an episode one, we had some really amazing footage 
from a BBC documentary that was all in the 1970s school. I mean, it just was so, so perfect. I mean, it was exactly the school. It was an inner London school and it was all these teachers, exactly how they describe. But then we, we, I mean, the BBC had it and then we were like, oh, can we use this? And then some, and then we thought we were going ahead and it was all looking good. And then we got a note saying somebody had complained because they didn't like the way they came out in the dock and then it got pulled. The worst one is that we really wanted a clip from Bill's dad's film. <laughs> <laughs> from a, a meaning of life, we had there was a bit where um, the sex education and John Cleese throws a chalkboard rubber. Oh, yeah, that's someone. right. Yeah, and we were like, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, we, let's use that. Yeah, it was just too expensive to clear, so... We... <laughs> uh, there was the one that aspect where all the guys in the band say that they can't remember recording on the show. What was that all about? <laughs> So Magpie, Mag- that's it, yeah. yeah. So that's not in the book, actually, because Chrissy Boy told us, oh, you've got to ask them all about Magpie and see how they react. The one thing about Madness is that the gags between them, there's just, you know, there's a comedy element going on between the band all the time. So they're all winding each other up and doing funny shit all the time. Anyway, Magpie's like, go ask them about Magpie. None of them can remember it. It'd be hilarious. Anyway, the point is, is it's a Magpie was supposedly, although we're not really 100% sure because nobody can remember, the first time they go on TV, British television, Vision. It was a sort of slightly older sort of kids magazine show, which neither me or Bill actually can remember, even though I think it was still going when we were kids. Anyway, Suggs didn't turn up because he'd met a girl and stayed in bed. <laughs> What was really funny, we were like, oh, once we clear this clip, we'll find out when the date, the, the, the transmission date of when they released the thing. And we can clear this up. It'll be brilliant. And we go, oh, can, can we have this footage? And they go, yeah, but the only place we can find it is uh, is the end of year roundup episode. We don't know where the, the original clip was. <laughs> so we still don't know. <laughs> wow. Something I was, I was sort of thinking before, oh, do I ask this, do I not? But given that you've already sort of gone and you know, mentioned, Bill, that your father was Terry. Given the mm. band's sense of humour, and uh, at least in those video clips, a lot of it appears very surreal, was your dad a fan of Madness? He had a greatest hits album in, in his record collection, but I don't know, um, to be honest. I, I, he had a band of it. He wasn't massively into sort of too much music anyway, so when he got drunk and started playing music, he'd break out this old wind-up gramophone. He'd brought this massive gramophone that was like a, a floor standing gramophone and it had a built in horn thing in the the base of this thing and so he'd have a dinner party and get pissed and start playing this loud music it was always that and it was tended to be like blue suede shoes and uh, from Elvis Presley and and I can't remember and there was a couple of uh, I can't remember the other songs and my, I'd get up out of bed and come down and go do you know it's a school night I've got school tomorrow <laughs> 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 and all his guests would be look a bit sheepish and go, oh, sorry. And <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know if he never he never cracked out the Madness album then. So I can't say he was, but I'm sure he, he did appreciate the the humour of the video. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. 
show is about to get its premiere on British TV, well, from the time that we're recording in about a week from now or something like that. What's its future? We were going to release it into the cinemas before it, it was it was announced with the COVID lockdown. So we've done a, like a theatrical version of it, cinema cut, cut down, which, as Bill said, we, were, we wanted to release, but... Yeah, that got that got done in. But what's the release schedule going to be like? I mean, it's it's interesting to say that you have a theatrical cut as well. So for the benefit of our listeners who are thinking, "Wow, we're big Madness fans. We want to see this." What's the release schedule going to be like? Well, at the moment in the UK, it's on BT. It's on a channel called AMC, which has got a, obviously a big channel in North America. But they have a, they have another chat. They have a channel here that sits on the BT TV network, and I think you can. Also to get it on Sky. If you're a BT broadband owner, you can get it on their app. I think they're dropping all three shows on the 1st of May. And then, uh, but I think actually the first episode is going to be on their YouTube channel. So that'll be for everybody. The first episode, well, not for everyone. Anybody with YouTube can see that. See, that might be a UK only. And I think the rest of the world, we're, we're still in talks about um, selling it. So. You have to wait and see, basically, for the sorry rest of the world. Make uh, Australia a priority, please. <laughs> we will have to say, though, that those that have to wait, it is well worth the wait. This is something that you're uh, definitely going to be happy with as a Madness fan. Thank you so much, gentlemen. This has been just such a wonderful conversation, and uh, we wish you absolutely every success with the doc. I guess I have to finish off with what do you know what you have planned next? That's always a tricky question. (laughs) (laughs) The answer to that is no. (laughs) Well, we've got a feature film that we've been wanting to do uh, called Cold Providence, which we've been working on, which is a drama. So not not documentary, which we've got co-directing, which hopefully we'll be doing towards the end of this year or the beginning of next. It it got caught in the COVID sphere. And that that film's based... uh, is set in Canada so yeah oh, we were going we, we to fly out to Canada and, 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 and film it and then the travel restrictions came in place and we're like oh um, we'll see it's still possibly going to happen that's a kind of I don't know what, what's the best way to describe it it's a road movie it's sort of Fargo meets Pulp Fiction I was best describe that one <laughs> we hope that by um, the uh, 2030s when all the COVID restrictions are fully dropped that you do get to put that one into production thank you so do we. Yeah, we thought we were ahead of the head of the game there, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but then COVID made sure that we're we're still in line. Mm. So what does that mean? We we should be making it in another four years. Ah, it sounds <laughs> that right. Thank you so very very much for your time. Thank you, Jake. gentlemen. Uh, Bill and Ben, we, we look forward to uh, seeing what our listeners' reactions to the film are. Hopefully, they can all get a chance to uh, watch it. We'll be getting a DVD release. I'm very old fashioned that way. In the UK, it will it will get a DVD, I think, and it will be you know it will get a sort of transactional release. Um, hopefully, not too long. So you can yeah, you can import it. You can you know. I will be doing that. I thought you might be Laserdisc. We're not doing Laserdisc. I'm not. I'm not that old fashioned, but. <laughs> There are some that are still releasing on VHS, believe it or don't. No. Yeah, what well, is that? No, no, I hate VHS. I mean, growing up, I worked in the post industry and, and in, in, like, in Soho in, in this country, and I just absolutely hated VHS. It was just, it's just such an awful, awful format. But anyway, 
<laughs> Never mind rambling. You heard it first here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, a hot take of BNG. <laughs> uh, you're listening to See Here, episode 84. We'll be back in a moment to talk with you about what's happening on next month's episode. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Cheers. Pack up party poppers, back up in the night. Our huge thanks to Bill Jones and to Ben Timlett for spending so much wonderful time talking with us about the Monty Python crew as well as Madness, who were basically the 1980s version of the Monty Python crew. If you watch those video clips and search all those video clips out on YouTube, they're so much fun. They're really, really wonderful. As we've been trying to push all this time, if you uh, get the chance to uh, watch Before We Was We, Madness by Madness on the AMC network or whatever VOD network it is available then we both urge you to do it this is really a lot of fun oh absolutely i mean even if you're not really familiar with madness or you know weren't really into the ska scene the whole documentary is really compelling and this is something i think that everyone once you start to dig into it and you hear the tales of sugs and the boys you're gonna stick around and uh, see that they got up to a whole lot of fun and a whole lot of beers and a whole lot of great music pretty much as bill's father would have said about madness before they became a band they were not pop stars they were just very naughty boys but i'm not doing it in mandy's voice anyway so yeah once again yeah huge thanks to those gents and let's talk about what's going to happen on episode 85 of c here now tim i think this is your pick yeah i decided to go with a little something different this time and we're going to go back way back we're going to go back to the 1940s for a certain film called hell's a poppin and Hell's a Poppin' is a film that would really surprise people for the time that it was released. It's available on YouTube if you want to go and uh, play along with us. Take a look at that. And all I want to say beforehand is that this film was really influential to things like uh, Richard Elfman's Forbidden Zone and a lot of the more eclectic musicals to come out of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. This was a precursor to all of them. So I think this is going to be a hell of a lot of fun. We're going to enjoy this, I think. I'm grateful to you for picking this because this was on my list of shame. This is one that I'm pretty sure Gilbert and Frank have spoken a lot about on GGACP. And uh, one that I know I definitely should have watched before. So thank you for uh, making sure. Well, now I have no choice. One thing I wanted to say also, we still want our listeners to actually give us recommendations all the time. We wholeheartedly encourage you to basically, even if it's something obscure, something left to center, that's what we're all about. That's where we've always been. So I highly recommend uh, any of you and I encourage you to please give us your uh, 
suggestions through email, Twitter, whatever. Actually, just while we're on that, uh, a huge thanks to uh, my good friend Lisa, because it was her who notified us in the first place that this madness documentary existed. As soon as she told me, this is around, I found out how to contact the guys, and within two hours, the interview was all booked. So uh, a huge thanks to Lisa for that recommendation. And uh, also a huge thanks out to uh, our friend Colin McCowan, who has made recommendations to us in the past that we followed up on. We used to have that thing, didn't we, Tim, where we'd put it formally on the Facebook page at the beginning of the year saying, right, give us three recommendations and they are guaranteed to be spoken about during the year. We haven't sort of done that formally, but yet, as Tim says, please send the recommendations through. We've done a lot of interviews in recent times, so we sort of haven't done as much of the round tables. But yeah, I think we should do a few more of these round tables over the next few months is to mix up with the interviews as well we're all a family here and you know we wouldn't be anything without our listeners i mean all, all three of you meaning you bernie and i yeah that's but it. anyway uh- <laughs> <laughs> so if you're listening to this show for the first time and you want to get in contact with us you can either go through facebook go facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast you can email us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. Email is still a very popular means of communication, so I'm led to believe. There's the Instagram page, and I never really look at the Instagram page. That's Bernie's domain, but I believe that if you just look up See Here Podcast, then you can uh, follow any nice pretty pictures that we have on that medium. We're a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Please go to pantheonpodcasts.com and check out, I think right now they're like at 71, 72 podcasts. So I guess that pretty much covers it. We'll see you next month for some Hells a Poppin' discussion. And once again, still wonderful to have you back, Tim. Thanks. So until next month, look after each other, be nice to each other. We'll see you soon. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. See you soon. Make the waters ebb and flow And all the things we could and should have done But them old regrets, well they'll come and go Just come and go the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Were they shot? Were they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. 
In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.